This is a Scream Queen production. These violent delights have violent ends. Violent ends. Violent ends. Greetings, Earthlings. Welcome to Violent Ends. I'm your host, Jen Carpenter. You want to know what's cool about having your own podcast? You get to talk about whatever the fuck you want to. So today I'm going to take a moment to brag about one of my badass friends and the amazing work that she's doing. Dr. Karen Holt is a criminologist. You guys, that's how serious shit's getting over here. I'm friends with a criminologist now. How cool is that? Uh, She's also an assistant professor at Michigan State University's School of Criminal Justice. In 2020, she and Allison Rojek, also a criminologist and an instructor at MSU's School of Criminal Justice, teamed up with the Michigan State Police to form a collaborative cold case unit comprised of detectives, criminologists, and criminal justice students. Per the website, this program allows students to engage directly with detectives in the Michigan State Police 1st District Cold Case Unit to assist in their investigation of cold case homicides and other cases across the state. Students will work in our cold case library, which houses cold cases from across the district. Students gather, synthesize, and analyze police investigative files and use such information to create a victimology for the case, applying theoretical constructs from bro. I knew I was going to mess that up. Applying theoretical constructs from both victimology and criminology. I'm over here unable to speak a sentence without messing up and. I'm friends with doctors now, so I should probably get my shit together. If you came to the live show celebrating 100 episodes earlier this year, or if you listened to the recording of said episode, you met Karen and Allison and one of their students, recently graduated students, Kirsten. They talked about the program and about the cases they've been working on. So the goal of the program, obviously, is to learn about the process of investigating cold cases and the delicate nature of working with families who have been reliving their trauma and waiting for answers for years, usually decades even. But the dream is to solve some cold cases, right? I mean, of course. And you guys, you guys, earlier this month, they fucking did it. Their work helped solve a 40-year-old cold case, and I am so proud of my girl Karen and her team. I had to just come and tell you about it. Coincidentally, my planned episode for this week was to cover the first murder case solved by DNA in Ingham County. For those of you not local, Ingham County is where my hometown of Lansing is located. As most cold cases are these days, the one just solved in part by the MSU School of Criminal Justice was solved through DNA. So, I feel like we should talk about all of these cases today. The first murder case in Ingham County to be solved through the use of DNA evidence, coincidentally a crime that began on MSU's campus, as well as the most recent solved in part by MSU students and professors. It's just full, full circle over here today. So let's get into it. Denise Loretta Fry was born in the small farming town of Portland, Michigan on September 10th, 1957. For those of you not from the area, Portland is about 25 miles northwest of Lansing and even today has a population of under 4,000. So it's a pretty small town. To locals, it's best known as the site of a devastating tornado that hit the town in 2015 and tore it all to shit. I remember we drove through Portland a couple days after this happened. We were on the way home from one of my son's baseball games, um, and we drove right through. And I've just never seen anything like it. And we had a really bad storm here recently with some tornadoes and straight-line winds that did a ton of damage, but... 
With this one, you could literally see like the twisting of the trees and the buildings, and it was just wild, wild and terrible. To true crime enthusiasts, it's known as the hometown of one Patrick Quinlan, the right-hand man and co-conspirator of America's first serial killer, H.H. Holmes. So, little, little bit of, little bit of history there in Portland. Denise was one of six children born to George and Emeretta Fry. The Fries were pillars of the Portland community and devoutly religious members of the Portland United Methodist Church. This is where young Denise met her future husband, David Banfield. Denise and David went to school together, worshiped together, and performed together. They were both members of the Portland Civic Players. And in March of 1978, when Denise was just 20 years old and David was 22, they got married and moved to the Lansing area. By the summer of 1981, just three years into their marriage, the young couple was thriving. They lived in a gated community, occupying a ground floor unit at the Villa Monte Luxury Apartments, located just off Abbott Road in East Lansing, near the MSU campus. Denise was a legal secretary at Hankins and Cluck Law Firm in Okemos, and David, who had become a reverend, so he went to rev- reverend school. It's, it's called seminary school, right? Or is that just priests? I don't know. I'm not religious. You guys know that. But he's he's a reverend now. Um, and he's a computer programmer at Altman Property Management, which is the company that actually owns the apartment complex that the Banfields live in. They had just purchased their first home in Okemos, which if you're not local— Okemos is one of the fancier Lansing suburbs, uh, and they were looking forward to moving into their forever home and starting a family. But one summer night on the outskirts of the Michigan State University campus would change all of that forever. Twas a dark and stormy night in East Lansing on Tuesday, June 2nd, 1981. 25-year-old David was working late, so 23-year-old Denise returned home from work to an empty apartment. She made dinner and put David's plate in the fridge. She twisted her long, dark brown hair into curlers and got ready for bed. Around 12.30 a.m., David called Denise to tell her that he was getting ready to pack up for the night and head home, but she didn't answer the phone. Just a few minutes later, the first call about a disturbance at the Villa Monte apartment complex was made to 911. Then another, and then another, all reporting the same disturbing details. A piercing, terrified scream cut through the night, drawing folks out of bed and away from their TVs to their windows and balconies. An unfamiliar car was parked in the lot, a boxy, dark-colored sedan with fins like an older Mercedes-Benz, and a man and a woman were engaged in a physical altercation beside it. The man was described as husky, around 200 pounds, white, with light brown floppy hair. He appeared to be in his 30s and was wearing khaki slacks and a yellow t-shirt. The woman was petite, five foot three, 110 pounds, her brown hair rolled into curlers. She had on baggy jeans and a blouse and appeared to be fighting for her life as her neighbors looked on without intervening. One neighbor who was out on her balcony heard the man say, Get in the car, you bitch, as the woman clawed at him and screamed for help. Due to the size difference between them, the man easily overpowered her, forced her in through the driver's side door, got in behind her, and closed the door. And then there was no more screaming after that. The car slowly backed out of its parking spot, then turned right onto Abbott Road and disappeared into the night. Less than five minutes later, the first police cruiser pulled into the lot. Finding no signs of a disturbance beyond a broken hair curler on the sidewalk, they chalked the incident up to a domestic disturbance and left without even questioning any of the residents who had called 911. Police returned less than an hour later after receiving a call from David Banfield at about 1.30 a.m. on June 3rd now, we're into the next day, he'd returned home from work to find his wife Denise missing. Well, fuck. It all makes sense now, doesn't it? 
at least 16 of Denise Banfield's neighbors watched her fight for her life as she was abducted and nobody intervened. I'm not suggesting that any of the women watching should have put their physical safety on the line to save her. Um, And some of them did call 911. But there were plenty of grown-ass men that were witnesses. Uh, No one intervened in any way, which could have just been a scream from the balcony. Uh, Hey, what the fuck are you doing? Let her go. I called the police. Something. And nobody did anything. (laughs) It makes me so angry. And I say that there were at least 16 witnesses because 16 is the number of people who admitted to police that they saw and or heard what happened and didn't do anything about it. I'm sure that there were many more who would never, ever admit to it and have even managed to convince themselves in the years since that they weren't negligent in those moments. One neighbor later told the Lansing State Journal, In the future, if I hear a scream or if I hear it's a husband-wife, male-female dispute, I will call the police immediately. I didn't this time because I thought it was a husband and wife fighting. There was no support system there. There were all these people around her, yet she was alone. Could you imagine how scary that must have felt for her in those moments? To be in an area where there were people watching you, you knew that they could hear you screaming, you're looking at them and screaming for help and nobody's doing anything but just standing and watching like a few of them pick up the phone to call the police, but nobody does anything. I just cannot even picture it. I mean, I can picture it because people are terrible, but I can't even imagine how just terrifying that must have been for her. And it really, really bothers me, TBH. So police come back. uh, They do a door-to-door search. Neighboring agencies help patrol the area. The Lansing Police Department's helicopter started conducting an aerial search. But it was all just way too little, way too late. Several hours later, several miles away, Denise's body was found by golf course groundskeepers who mistook her battered corpse for a mannequin as we know, it's never a mannequin, before discovering the horrible truth. In the early morning hours of June 3rd, 1981, groundskeepers at the Chardell Golf Course in Bath, Michigan, arrived to get the course ready for the day. The golf course was located six miles due north of the Villamonte apartment complex. So Villamonte was just off of Abbott Road in East Lansing, and the golf course was just off of Chandler Road in Bath. Abbott Road turns into Chandler Road, so it's the same road. Um, She was literally directly up the street, just north, the exact same road from which Denise Banfield had disappeared. The sun was still rising in the early summer sky. Most residents were still in bed, and the Lansing State Journal hadn't even had time to print the story yet about the missing young woman from East Lansing. So, as far as the groundskeepers at the golf course knew, as they began making their rounds and turning on the sprinklers, all was well. Which was why they didn't immediately suspect a dead body when they found a partially clad figure lying across the fourth hole fairway. They thought it was a mannequin. Wearing only a pair of men's blue jeans, which Denise was likely forced to put on hastily during her abduction, 23-year-old Denise Banfield had been badly beaten about the chest and face before being strangled to death. She wasn't raped. She wasn't robbed. She still had on her jewelry and nothing was taken from the apartment. There were no signs of forced entry at the Banfield home and police believed her killer entered through an unlocked sliding glass door. Denise had no known enemies. Everyone who knew her loved her. Police were stumped as they continued to search for the suspect and his dark-colored, fin-tailed sedan. Before we continue, I do need to take a moment to thank today's sponsor. If you know anything about me, it's that I have zero chill, like none at all. But thanks to microdosing, Jen's got her chill back. Or 
I'm, I'm, I'm getting there. I'm working on it. Our show today is sponsored by Microdose Gummies. Microdose Gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. They taste good, which is important for my fellow picky palate people. Say that one three times fast. They leave me feeling calm, but still able to focus and get shit done, which is important because I always have a zillion and one things to do. Microdose is available nationwide. To learn more about microdosing THC, go to microdose.com and use code VIOLENTENDS to get free shipping and 30% off your first order. Links can be found in the show description, but again, that is microdose.com, promo code VIOLENTENDS for 30% off your first order and free shipping. And be sure to tell them I sent you. Okay, back to today's nightmare. When news broke that a young woman had been kidnapped from her East Lansing apartment and strangled to death, panic swept the community. It had only been three years, not even three full years yet, since serial killer Donald Miller was arrested for preying on young women in the East Lansing area, and residents were still traumatized. And now it was happening again. Despite multiple witnesses to Denise Banfield's kidnapping, Leads quickly dried up and months went by. And then on October 14th, four and a half months later, a 26-year-old woman was attacked in her Coolidge Road home, not even a mile from the Villamonte apartments. She had just returned home from dropping her daughter off at kindergarten when a man approached her on her front porch saying he was doing research in the neighborhood. He then forced her into the house and attacked her. He beat her, sexually assaulted her, bit her face, banged her head into the floor repeatedly in an attempt to render her unconscious, and was strangling her when the woman's four-year-old son, who had still been in the car when the man attacked his mother, entered the house. This interruption allowed just enough of a distraction for the woman to get up and flee into the kitchen, where she grabbed her son, grabbed a knife, and threatened to kill her attacker if he came near her. She then ran to a neighbor's house and called 911. A fingerprint lifted from the woman's home matched the fingerprints of a man awaiting trial for the November 4, 1980 rape of a woman in Grand Rapids. That man was 19-year-old Joseph Howard McMillan Jr., a Lansing Community College student living in East Lansing. McMillan was taken into custody by the Ingham County Sheriff's Department nine days after the Coolidge Road attack, and a week later, news broke that he was the prime suspect in the as-yet-unsolved murder of Denise Banfield. This was a bit shocking, because remember, the description of Denise Banfield's attacker was that he was a 200-pound white dude with brown floppy hair in his 30s. Joseph McMillan was a 19-year-old black kid with an afro and a goatee who, it's hard to tell from the couple photos I've seen of him, but he looks pretty skinny. At the time, authorities would only say that forensic evidence from the Banfield apartment, the golf course, and McMillan's car was being examined and that multiple coincidences beyond just the close proximity of the attacks was what made McMillan their prime suspect in Denise's murder. McMillan went on trial for the Coolidge Road attack first. On March 31, 1982, he was convicted of breaking and entering with intent and second-degree criminal sexual conduct, and he was sentenced to 5 to 15 years for each charge. Later that year, he went on trial for the rape in Grand Rapids, and on June 4, 1983, he was convicted of two counts of first-degree criminal sexual conduct and sentenced to 25 to 40 years for each count. While McMillan remained the prime suspect in Denise Banfield's murder, it would be years before he was charged. On February 2, 1989, 2,801 days after 23-year-old Denise Banfield was dragged kicking and screaming from her East Lansing apartment, in front of an entire building full of witnesses before being murdered and dumped at a nearby golf course, now 26-year-old Joseph Howard McMillan Jr. 
was indicted on felony murder, kidnapping, and breaking and entering with the intent to commit criminal sexual conduct charges. One of the key pieces of evidence against him was this newfangled thing called DNA. The article in the February 3rd, 1989 Lansing State Journal announcing his arrest actually explained what DNA was. It was that new that they had to, like, tell people what it was. The article said, A key piece of evidence in the case will be DNA tests of hair found in Banfield's apartment. A California lab has told police the tests show that the hair is McMillan's. DNA is a substance in human cells that contains genetic information. The technology used to identify DNA in hair is new and was not available for the original investigation. That is so crazy to me because DNA evidence feels like it's been around forever. But like, I was nine when this article was written. (laughs) So wild. It was another three years before McMillan's trial began on May 28, 1992. The trial lasted about three weeks, and on June 22nd, a jury of his peers found Joseph McMillan Jr. guilty of second-degree murder and kidnapping. He got 25 to 40 years for the kidnapping charge and life for the murder charge. This was the very first trial in Ingham County to use DNA evidence, so this was a big deal. Well, it's a big deal now, In hindsight, knowing how DNA has completely changed the true crime game, at the time, though, DNA was getting mixed reviews. To highlight this, I would like to read you an excerpt from the June 23rd, 1992 Lansing State Journal. Uh, This article was by Betsy Miner. A single footprint did more to convince jurors that Joseph McMillan Jr. killed an East Lansing secretary 11 years ago than expert testimony on state-of-the-art DNA evidence. McMillan was found guilty Monday of the second-degree murder and kidnapping of Denise Banfield. The DNA had no bearing on the conviction, juror Stephanie Wasson said. We thought the DNA testing was botched and the police did a sloppy job with the case. The four-week trial was the first in Ingham County using DNA fingerprinting. The evidence? The root on a strand of hair found in Banfield's apartment was compared with DNA samples taken from McMillan. Michigan State Police experts pronounced it a match. The article then goes on to explain, again, three years later, what DNA is and how DNA evidence works, and then goes back to Stephanie the juror, who believed the DNA test was botched because it wasn't repeated multiple times. She said, Anybody that took science in high school knows that when you test something, you test it again. They've got a long way to go. Stephanie, girl, I am pretty sure that the forensic scientists that ran the tests took classes well beyond high school in the field of science. Like, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure. But even the Ingham County prosecutor, Donald Martin, had super silly things to say about the DNA evidence. He said, There was other incriminating evidence that spoke louder than the DNA. DNA was the frosting, an extra confirmation that we had the right man. The frost. The frosting? DNA was the frosting? And a shoe print was the cake? (laughs) What? So, much like how the first woman ever convicted of murder in Michigan didn't even kill anybody, sorry about that one, Mary Brooks, the first murder trial to use DNA evidence in Ingham County, and one of the first in Michigan just overall, didn't actually rely on that evidence at all to get the conviction. We are so silly, (laughs) y'all. We are just a bunch of silly gooses around here. What did convince a jury of McMillan's guilt? That aforementioned shoe print, of course, um, which was found in the parking lot of an apartment building where dozens of people lived. They found a footprint that matched a pair of shoes owned by McMillan. 
tire imprints found near the body matched a car that McMillan had access to. That's the way the article's worded. So it doesn't even say that it was his car. It just says a car he had access to. A pencil from the golf course where Denise's body was dumped was found in that same car. And okay, those ones are all stupid, but this one is actually really odd. There were pennies, lots of pennies embedded in the tire tracks at the golf course and the floor of this car that McMillan was driving around was littered with thousands of pennies. So a shoe print, a tire track, a pencil, and pennies, not even quarters, but pennies, sent Joseph McMillan Jr. to prison for life. Not the DNA evidence putting him inside Denise Banfield's apartment. I bet, though, like kind of looking this all back over when the police said that there were coincidences linking him to the Banfield attack and the Coolidge Road attack. I bet it was those fucking pennies, right? Like I bet there was pennies on the ground at the Coolidge Road and pennies in the car that they caught him in. And then they were like, well, fuck, here's those pennies we've been looking for. At the time of this recording, Joseph... McMillan Jr., serial rapist, murderer, and penny collector, is 61 years old, and he's housed at the Lakeland Correctional Facility in... Not Ionia. I know you thought I was going to say Ionia. He is down in Coldwater. So, DNA evidence has come a long way since 1992, which again was not that long ago. I was 12. I was 12 years old. And I'm only 29 now, so like that's not very long at all. And it's gone from being the frosting on an evidence cake to the whole fucking bakery. And now we've got ancestral DNA changing the game once again. DNA taken from the family members of a suspect, linking them oftentimes to decades-old cases. And that's what happened earlier this month when our sweet baby angels from the MSU School of Criminal Justice helped solve a fucking murder. So now let's travel to March 18th, 1982. It's been nine months since Denise Banfield was dragged kicking and screaming from her East Lansing apartment in front of over a dozen witnesses, none of whom stepped in to help her. I'm going to keep saying that because it upsets me so much. Green Oak Township, is listed as a suburb of Detroit on Google, but it's actually closer to Ann Arbor. Like, it's straight north of Ann Arbor. So I think it's an Ann Arbor suburb and not a Detroit suburb. The whole state is not Detroit, Wikipedia. Thank you. Um, Green Oak Township has a population of just over 20,000, so it's not super tiny. It's a smallish town, but it's not tiny. And it's located about 50 miles southeast of East Lansing. This is where the Lewisell family lived. William, Joanna, and their four children, daughters Catherine, Cindy, and Kimberly, and son Timothy. Kimberly, Kim to her loved ones, was 16 years old in 1982. She was child number three of four, so she was the second youngest. She was an avid reader who loved poetry, but also had a bit of a wild side. The sophomore at South Lyon High School was outgoing and popular, And according to police, she liked to party. Uh, yeah, she was 16, bruh. I would think so. Um, And then police also said that she had dropped out of school earlier that year. March 18th, 1982 was a Thursday. Against her mother's wishes, Kim hitchhiked to Redford to visit her boyfriend, Robert Brown. Redford is an actual Detroit suburb and it's located about 30 miles east of Green Oak Township where Kim lived. It takes about 45 minutes to drive there in one car straight shot. So if she was hitchhiking, that was probably quite a little adventure. Robert's family was getting ready to move from Redford into Detroit and Kim offered to help them. Since Robert had moved from his home near Kim's to the Detroit area, Kim would often hitchhike to visit him, usually staying for a few days at a time. On March 20th, which was a Saturday, 
Kim called home to tell her parents that she she was done. She was going to begin the trek back home after being with Robert and his family for a couple days, and she should be back later that evening. The Lewisells never heard from their daughter again. Kim's boyfriend's younger brother walked with her to the corner of Six Mile and Inkster. It's weird to me that it was the little brother, not the boyfriend, but okay. Um, so he walks her to the nearest corner nearest the house, right? Six Mile and Inkster, uh, where Kim set out on her hitchhiking journey toward home. The brother watched Kim get into a light blue gremlin, uh, and he actually did have the foresight to write down the license plate number, and then he went back home. The driver of the gremlin only transported Kim about four miles. He dropped her off at the corner of Eight Mile and Merriman in Livonia at about 6.30 p.m. From there, Kim reportedly made several phone calls trying to find someone to come pick her up, but was unsuccessful. She was last seen by a female acquaintance walking westbound on 8 Mile between Merriman and Farmington Roads in Livonia. When Kim failed to return home, her mother Joanna called the Green Oaks Township Police Department to report her missing. She also called Robert Brown. Kim's boyfriend was quickly cleared of any wrongdoing by police, and he set out to look for his missing girlfriend. His little brother told police about the blue gremlin, and he gave them the license plate number. The driver was located, questioned, and cleared as well. According to authorities, Kim's family told them that she took off frequently and that wherever she was, she'd probably gone voluntarily. But according to Kim's family, they were adamant that Kim had not run away. She'd called them and told them she was on her way home. Why would she do that if she didn't intend to come home? Despite their pleas, Kim was considered a runaway and no meaningful work was put into finding her. I do want to take just a quick minute here to thank today's other sponsor. Care of is a subscription service that ships high quality, personalized vitamins, supplements, and powders conveniently to your door every month. As you're settling into your spooky season routine, make focusing on healthy habits a part of that. Care of can help you figure out where to start your wellness journey with their quick and easy online quiz. Just answer a few questions about your lifestyle and health goals, and as your needs and goals change, Care of can help you adjust your routine to match. Their quiz can be retaken at any time to give you updated recommendations. I love the ease and convenience of Care of. Your supplements and powders come in daily packs, so there's no sorting, measuring, or having to find a place to store a dozen different bottles. Just grab your daily pack on the way out the door and go. For anyone looking for a little immune health support, adaptogenic mushrooms have adaptogenic properties that help support your immune system, and garlic contains antioxidant properties that help keep your immune system healthy. For 50% off your first Care Of order, go to TakeCareOf.com and enter code VIOLENTENDS50. Again, that is TakeCareOf.com, promo VIOLENTENDS50 for 50% off your first order. And be sure to tell them I sent you. April 14th, 1982 was a Wednesday. A couple was walking their dog around 2 p.m. at the Island Lake State Recreation Area in Green Oak Township, where Kim and her family lived, when they found Kim's nude body curled into the fetal position, poorly concealed in a clump of bushes and trees about 25 feet off a walking path and 400 feet behind the park and ride at the corner of Pleasant Valley Road and Grand River Avenue. Kim had been missing for three and a half weeks at this point but authorities determined she'd only been dead for a few days. She had been raped, beaten, and strangled. Where had she been for those three weeks that she was missing before she was killed? And how had she made it all the way back home without making it back to her home? The state park where her body was found was just seven miles from her family home, so she made that 30-some mile trip from her boyfriend's house back home but never made it into the house. Even if she had chosen, for whatever reason, not to go back to her parents' house, she would have stayed with friends, popped up at parties, but no one who knew Kim had seen her since the night she disappeared. So how 
And when did she get back to Green Oak Township? And what happened to her during those three weeks that she was still alive, but nobody could find her? Those questions would haunt Kim's family and law enforcement officials for years. In 1981, 23-year-old Denise Banfield was kidnapped from her East Lansing apartment and murdered. In 1982, 16-year-old Kimberly Lewisell disappeared somewhere between Livonia and Brighton and was murdered. In 1983, it was 19-year-old Christina Castiglione. Christina Lynn Castiglione was born on March 8, 1964, the youngest child of Sicilian-born construction worker Cristoforo Castiglione and his wife Beatrice. The Castiglione family lived in Redford, the same Detroit suburb from which Kim Lewisell disappeared. Chrissy, as she was known, attended Redford Union High School where she managed the girls' basketball and volleyball teams. The strong-willed athletic brunette with dark curly hair graduated in 1982 and got a clerical job at Detroit Edison, the local utility company, but had dreams of joining the Army and traveling the world. In early 1983, she began taking the steps to make that happen. She sold her red Mustang, on which she had rebuilt the engine herself, and visited an Army recruitment office. On Saturday, March 19, 1983, 11 days after her 19th birthday, Chrissy spent the day running errands with her boyfriend, 25-year-old Christopher Lindsay, who lived in northwest Detroit. The two parted ways around 2 p.m. with plans to meet up again later that night. Chrissy returned to her parents' home on MacArthur Street and took a nap. As darkness fell and she hadn't heard from Christopher, she decided to go look for him. Since she'd recently sold her car, that meant setting off on foot and doing a combination of walking and hitchhiking. She left home around 7.30 that night, and she never returned. She stopped by Christopher's sister's house, but he wasn't there. She then went to a mutual friend's house on Five Mile Road, but Christopher wasn't there either. She stayed for a little bit watching TV with her friends and then decided that she was done looking for him and she was just going to walk back home. While Chrissy never found Christopher that night, he found her. Right about the time that Chrissy began her walk home, Christopher was leaving a party with friends. He saw Chrissy, his girlfriend, standing on the road outside Kingsborough Party Store hitchhiking. It was dark, cold, and raining. A rain so cold it would soon turn into snow, and Chrissy was bundled up in her burgundy ski jacket with the hood pulled up. And Christopher? did not stop for her. He later told police that the reason he didn't stop was because Chrissy didn't like the friends he was with. So, like, come on, there was a girl in the car, right? Like, some sort of girl drama, and he didn't want Chrissy to see that he was with some other girl when he was supposed to be with her. I'm totally speculating here, but sounds right for a fuckboy, doesn't it? Instead of stopping to pick up his hitchhiking girlfriend in the dark, in the freezing rain, what Christopher did was um, his friend stopped at a party store down the street to buy beer. He got out of the car and he waited for Chrissy because she was heading in his direction. When she didn't show up after a few minutes, he backtracked toward where he'd seen her, but she was just gone. Not wanting to upset Chrissy's parents by telling them that she was missing, Christopher just did nothing. He didn't look for her any further, didn't tell anyone he couldn't find her, nothing. Chrissy's mother reported her missing at noon the following day. Because of the striking similarities to Kim Lewisell's case, both girls went missing from the same general area in Redford while hitchhiking. Both were petite teenagers with long brown hair. Police took this case seriously from the get-go. The direness of the situation intensified when the Redford Police Department began receiving calls within a few hours of Chrissy being reported missing about a nude, partially clad woman being forced into a vehicle. Ten days after Chrissy went missing, on March 29th, a man scouting for a good hunting spot at the Oak Grove State Game Area in Cahocta Township, 
I think I said that right. I might not have. Um, Some 45 miles northwest of Redford found her body. She was wearing only a t-shirt and she had been raped, beaten, and strangled. And so the similarities between the murders of Kim Luisell and Chrissy Castiglione, almost exactly one year apart, by the way, Kim disappeared on March 20th, 1982, and Chrissy disappeared on March 19th, 1983. So literally 364 days apart. Both pretty brunette teenagers hitchhiking in Redford found dead in state game areas in Livingston County nearly 50 miles from where they went missing, both beaten, raped, and strangled. These connections were not lost on authorities who believed it was very likely that the murders were connected. But they never could have imagined how the two would come together some 40 years later to bring closure to two still-grieving families. While the murder of Denise Banfield was solved within about 11 years, the first murder case in Ingham County to use DNA as evidence, the families of Kim Luisell and Chrissy Castiglione had a much longer journey ahead of them. A good DNA sample was collected in the Castiglione case, although the technology did not yet exist to do the appropriate testing on that evidence. In the early 2000s, the sample was entered into CODIS, which stands for Combined DNA Index System. CODIS is a software program that stores the DNA profiles of convicted offenders so that those profiles can be tested against DNA evidence from unsolved crimes. Unfortunately, the CODIS analysis of the Castiglione sample did not yield any results. Another advancement in DNA technology would be required before this case could be solved. Ancestral DNA. Before we continue, I do want to take a minute here to give a little shout out to our sponsors from this year's Festival of Oddities. We couldn't do it without them, so please be sure to go and show them all some love. One of our favorite artists and plush creators, Creepy Kawaii, is currently running a Kickstarter campaign for a new round of adorable plush characters. The campaign is called It Must Be Fall, Frogs and Snails Plush, and if fully funded, will result in the production of Potato, the Desert Rain Frog, Cabbage, the Witch's Familiar, also a frog, and Jesper, the Snail King. If you go to the Creepy Kawaii website or Facebook or Instagram pages, you'll find the link for the Kickstarter as well as photos of said creepy creatures. And let me just tell you, they are adorable. I love them so much. I think Jesper's my favorite, but it's hard to choose. They're also super cute. We sell Creepy Kawaii at Dead Time Stories, so I can confirm that everything they make is quality and unique, and the plush are so soft. If you're not familiar with how Kickstarter works, there are basically different tiers you can pledge, with a range of benefits available, and there are tiers to fit pretty much any budget. Right now, the goal is to get Potato funded, and then it's on to his pals. Violent Ends listeners can save 15% by using code VIOLENT. I'll post the Kickstarter link on the Violent Ends website, but you can also go to creepykawaii.com or the Creepy Kawaii Facebook or Instagram page to find the links that way. Our other main event sponsor this year was the uber-talented Erica Joe Photography. I have been working with Erica for years. She did the photography for Haunted Lansing and the Serial Killer Chronicles. She's taken my headshots, our family photos, my kids' senior pictures. She does the themed photo sessions at a Festival of Oddities. She really does it all, and she does it so well. She's got a fantastic eye for detail, and I've never been anything other than thrilled with how our sessions have turned out. Did you see the themed photos from the Festival of Oddities this year? She did like a creepy clown theme, and it was just beyond. Like, so good. So, so good. You can see Erica's work by visiting ericajoephotography.com or checking out her Facebook page, Erica Joe Photography LLC. She is currently booking for winter and holiday sessions, and her schedule fills up fast, so make your appointment soon. I also want to give a quick shout out to this year's featured performer sponsors, Stimps. I, <clears throat> I don't know what happened to my voice there. <laughs> Let's try that again. I also want to give a quick shout out to this year's featured performer sponsors, 
Stimson Hospital, one of our most favorite truly haunted destinations in the Lansing area. Be sure to check out their Facebook page for upcoming events. They do tours, festivals, paranormal investigations, all kinds of cool shit. Also, Addis Enterprises, a full-service design and marketing firm that is locally owned and operated. For a full list of this year's festival sponsors and links to their websites, you can visit festivalofoddities.com and click on the sponsorship link. All right, let's wrap it up, Captain Crunch. (laughs) That doesn't really rhyme. It rhymed in my head better than it's rhyming out loud, but let's just, let's keep going. A few years ago, the Livingston County's Cold Case Task Force decided to take a new look at the Castiglione case. I really hope I'm not saying that wrong. I should have tried to find like a video of someone saying it. I'm so sorry if I'm mispronouncing this name. Um, So they decided to take a new look at this case just as the Michigan State University's School of Criminal Justice Cold Case team began digging into the Lewisell case. In 2022, the Livingston County Sheriff's Office received funding through Season of Justice, a nonprofit organization that funds DNA testing in unsolved homicides, to have advanced testing done on the DNA evidence collected in the Castiglione case. The forensic lab that ran the tests developed a comprehensive genealogical profile, which allowed them to not only search for the killer's DNA here, there, and everywhere, but anyone related to the killer who may have their DNA profile stored either in CODIS or a public database like GEDmatch. Contrary to popular belief, authorities cannot access the confidential information from services like Ancestry DNA or 23andMe. But people who take those at-home DNA tests can upload their results to sites like GEDmatch, which authorities do have access to. This testing finally, after 40 years, started authorities down the path to answers. They found three familial matches, a man that was the uncle of their unknown suspect, a man that was the brother of their unknown suspect, and a man that was the son of their unknown suspect. So the killer is X. We don't know who he is, but here's his DNA profile. Through ancestral DNA profiling, we've identified his uncle, his brother, and his son. While the uncle had a few nephews, the brother only had one brother, and the son, of course, only had one father, which meant that, at long last, they knew who Christina Castiglione's killer was. Charles David Shaw, Chuck to family and friends, was born on April 16, 1956, and he spent his entire life in the Detroit area. He lived a troubled life, and he was described by his family as a sex addict who struggled with gender identity. In 1973, when he was 17, he was arrested for breaking and entering. In 1977, when he was 21, he was arrested on a drug charge. In 1981, he was arrested for the attempted abduction of a woman in the Fowlerville McDonald's parking lot. Fowlerville is in Livingston County, where both Kim Lewisell and Chrissy Castiglione's bodies were found. In 1982, he was arrested for stealing women's shoes from a Kmart. And on November 26, 1983, when he was 27 years old, Charles David Shaw died although how he died remains up for debate. Some say he died from suicide by hanging, while official reports list his death as accidental, caused by erotic asphyxiation. Either way, he died by self-strangulation the same year that he strangled Chrissy Castiglione to death. The news of Christina Castiglione's killer being identified broke in February of 2023, while the MSU School of Criminal Justice students were still investigating Kim Lewisell's murder, which happened the year before Chrissy was killed. And as they sifted through the boxes and boxes of evidence and pages and pages of reports, one name in particular caught their attention. Back in 1983, someone called in a tip about Charles David Shaw a bad dude who lived in the neighborhood Kim Lewisell disappeared from and who destroyed his apartment shortly after Kim's murder, 
which this person found suspicious enough to tell the police about. A report was taken, but the department never followed up or tracked Shaw down to question him. Authorities had long believed the two cases were connected, and this just solidified their suspicions. With Charles David Shaw now their prime suspect, the MSU students did a property audit of all of the evidence in the Lewisell case, and they submitted some of it for advanced forensic testing, hoping for a miracle. And they got one. A single sperm cell was found on evidence that had been sitting in a box for over 40 years. The DNA profile was run through CODIS, and this time there was a match because Charles David Shaw's DNA profile was now in CODIS. On September 14, 2023, news broke that Charles David Shaw had been positively identified as Kimberly Lewisell's killer, 41 years after her murder. And with that, the Michigan State University School of Criminal Justice's Cold Case Task Force, led in part by my good buddy Karen, solved a fucking murder. And we, as a community, are so fucking proud of our little baby crime fighters who, as we all know, have had a hell of a year. So, good job, you guys. We're so proud of you. Virtual hugs all over. Authorities all over the state are now looking at old unsolved cases from the 70s and early 80s in which women were the victims, and there are a lot of them. Uh, And Charles David Shaw is now in mind as a suspect in a lot of these cases. Does he have more victims? My money is on probably. Was he a serial killer? Only time will tell. And that, friends, concludes the episode in which I brag about my murder-solving friend and her students. My main source for today's episode was older newspaper articles, obviously a couple new ones with the recent developments, uh, but a full list of resources is going to be available upon request. A new episode of Violent Ends is coming your way in a couple of weeks. Until then, keep shining, you magnificent what-the-fucks. fucks